following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. There are so many ways, so, so, so many ways that you can make people mad at you. To make people immediately cut you off, immediately disregard every thought and every word you have to say. You want to know what one of the easiest ones is? How's that a start for a message on Mother's Day? (laughs) Here's how you can most easily upset people and tick them off. Find someone who is angry. I don't just mean a little bit upset. I mean boiling with rage, anger. Find that person and remind them that they are called to forgive. You want to really upset somebody who's already angry? You want to turn their anger on you? Like, I see you're angry. Forgive. Jesus says so. And then walk away. I guarantee that rage will shift to you like that. Why? Shouldn't that be one of the most helpful things we have to share with another person? It should, but it's not. Why is that? I think it's because if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, at least in the moments of our deepest, darkest rage, we don't understand forgiveness. I mean, we get we're supposed to do it, right? We get that the Bible talks about it. We understand Jesus tells us to forgive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all great. But again, if we're being brutally honest with ourselves, forgiveness often feels more like a chore we have to muddle through in our flesh in order to appease God rather than the beautiful reflection of God's grace that we get to share with the world. Amen? I guess it's just me. Okay, this is how I feel very often. But this happens when we fail to grasp the basis for and the reality of forgiveness. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how well do I truly understand, embrace, and extend forgiveness? In the conclusion of the Jacob and Esau story that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Genesis chapter 33, we're gonna see the two brothers finally meet. In their reconciliation, God teaches Jacob and in the process teaches you and me, three characteristics of true, deep, biblical forgiveness through Esau's response to his brother. And the first is this. God teaches us through Esau's response that forgiveness is never demanding. Forgiveness is never demanding. Genesis chapter 33, verses one through seven. It says, now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slaves. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead 
and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. They wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, who are these with you? He answered, the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Forgiveness is never demanding. We remember when we left Jacob over the last couple of weeks, he encountered some angels and he named the place where he was at two camps. And under that inspiration, he hears his brother is coming to meet him with 400 men. He's coming with an army. So Jacob splits his people into two camps and sends them across this little ford. And as he's waiting there, as he has sent them across, he encounters God and he wrestles with God and he is blessed. His name is changed to Israel and he receives the blessing from God. Well, now, now the time has come for him to actually meet his brother. And so Jacob lines up his family and he cautiously approaches his brother. Says he bows down seven times, right? Seven times. It's a sign of of complete surrender and respect. He doesn't just go, hey, you're my brother. Okay, I, I, I bow down. That's good enough, right? No, he comes seven times, a number for completion. Bows down. He shows this respect and he throws himself at his brother's feet. How does Esau respond? It says Esau ran to, hugged, threw his arms around, kissed, and wept with his brother Jacob. Now again, remember back to the last time we've seen Esau, when we've actually seen Esau in the text of Scripture. You've got to go back to Genesis 27, verse 41. And Jacob has just stolen the blessing from Esau by dressing up as his brother, by by tricking his father into giving him the blessing. And in Genesis 27, verse 41, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. So the last time these two meet, Esau says, I'm gonna kill my brother. It's the last we hear. Now, 40 plus years later, Jacob comes to meet him. What do you think Jacob's expecting? Right, we already talked about Esau's coming with 400 men. He thinks it's an army. He thinks his brother's gonna come and try to carry out what he had determined in his heart all those years ago. But instead, over these past 40 plus years, God has been working to soften Esau's heart. I think this is absolutely amazing because we have no idea what God has done in the life of Esau. Right? We, we don't know how God has intervened, how God has softened him to his brother. We just know that in one moment, we have him going, I'm gonna kill my brother. And then he runs, hugs him, loves him, wraps his arms around him. In spite of their past, Esau's concern is no longer the birthright or Jacob's deception. It's the joy of the return of his brother. This should immediately in our minds draw us back to Luke chapter 15. 
Luke chapter 15, we get the story of the prodigal son, as many of us know it. And if you remember the story of the prodigal son, you have these two brothers, and their father who, who has some wealth. And the younger brother goes, hey, dad, I don't want to wait till you're dead and gone. Give me my money. I want my whole inheritance right now. And the father says to him, son, thy will be done. Here's your money. And the, brother run, the boy runs off to the city, spends all the money, parties, has a great time until all of a sudden all the wealth is gone. All the money's gone. Now he's got nothing. And he finds himself working, feeding pigs and looking at the pig slop going, man, that looks pretty good. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time around pigs, but I'm guessing the pig slop doesn't look all that appealing. But this boy goes, man, that looks good. And then he has the idea, well, what am I doing here? Why, why am I doing this? Why don't I just go back to my father? I can do this for my father and he'll at least take care of me. He always took great care of his servants. Okay, I'm going back to the father. And so he starts walking back, carrying with him this guilt, this shame, this fear. And I always picture the, the, the son walking back and just kind of talking to himself, rehearsing that speech. You know that speech you rehearse in your head when like, okay, I got it. Okay, I was wrong. I did this, dad. I'm sorry. Would you please take me back? That doesn't sound right. Okay, maybe we say it like this. Oh no, maybe, right? He's working this speech out as he's coming. And then you get to verse 20 and it says, when he got up, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, he's stumbling, he's struggling. He's thinking through that speech. How do I, how do I fix this? How do I make this right? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And we know as we follow the story to its conclusion, the father doesn't even stop there. He throws a party for his son. He doesn't say, yeah, you can still be my servant. He says, no, 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 you are my son. You are home. I don't care about the money. I love you. Like the prodigal son, Jacob, was coming back to the promised land in shame and with fear. But he was met with a welcome, welcoming and loving forgiveness. The prodigal son's father didn't demand his money back and Esau didn't demand back his birthright or the blessing because forgiveness is given with joy for the chance to extend it. Not as a means of getting back what we think we've lost. Forgiveness is given with a joy for the chance to extend it. Forgiveness that works on the basis of demands and conditions is not forgiveness. It's not grace. It's not divine. It's maybe debt payment. It's certainly earthly. And it is useless. Forgiveness. True, God-honoring, beautiful forgiveness is merciful, it is gracious, it is powerful, and it demands nothing in return. When we've been hurt 
when we've been wronged, when we suffer at the hands of others. Be that a business partner, a neighbor, or a spouse. What do we expect in return for our forgiveness? What do we expect in return for our forgiveness? Is that offer of forgiveness about us? Or is it about the joy and the blessing of extending God's grace? As the brothers' meeting continues, Esau continues to reflect God's love to his brother Jacob by showing how, yes, forgiveness is never demanding, but also forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness is never deserved. We continue in the story, verses 8 through 11. It says, so Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please, If I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I've seen your face and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you because God has been gracious to me and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Forgiveness is never deserved. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we said Jacob was, was sending all of these gifts ahead to try to buy favor with his brother. All of these animals, all of these gifts, thinking, well, maybe my brother will take this and it'll be enough. He's trying to find what favor with his brother. He's trying to buy off his brother. In other words, Jacob is saying, listen, brother, I know I stole your birthright. I stole your blessing. I can't give those back, but here, take this. Let's swap, even trade, right? We're, we're even now. The, the, the scales are, are balanced. And what does Esau do when Jacob offers these gifts? He says, no, I don't, I don't need that. He says, I don't want the gift. He refuses the gift because he knows God has already blessed him. When we look at Esau's life, all of his family, all of his wealth, all of his power, he knows God has already taken care of him. And then the brothers do what brothers do. They bicker back and forth for a little bit. Right? Esau goes, I don't want that. Jacob goes, oh, just take it. He's like, no, just take, come on. No, I don't want it. Just take it. And finally, Esau gives in. He's like, look, okay, I'll take it. He takes the gift. But here's the key to this gift in this passage. It's not about what was included. It's not about the fact that Esau even accepts it. Here's the key. When does Esau accept the gift? Before or after he has run to, thrown his arms around, loved and kissed his brother? After. He accepts the gift, not as, a mean, not as Jacob's means of, of attaining forgiveness, because Esau has already extended forgiveness. See, true, meaningful, biblical forgiveness 
is not something that is earned. It's something that is given to the undeserving. Forgiveness is given to the undeserving. Colossians chapter two, verse 13. Paul says, when we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. When we were what? Dead in our trespasses and uncircumcision of our flesh. When we were in sin, when we were undeserving of the love, knowledge, and presence of a good, holy, and perfect God, when we were there, what's it say? He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. When did the forgiveness come? When when we'd made everything right, when we'd done enough good stuff to balance out the bad, when we'd finally earned forgiveness, when we were deserving? No, when we were dead, when we were unrighteous, when we were sinful. It's not about deserving it because if forgiveness is about deserving it, we're all in big trouble. See, God's forgiveness is granted to those who don't deserve it. And we are to follow the same pattern. We are called to be a people of forgiveness. And as such, we are to freely offer forgiveness to those who do not deserve to be forgiven. Does that make anybody else uncomfortable? Is it just me? Because I don't like that God tells me that. I wish he said, hey, Jonathan, you can forgive these people when they make it right. You can forgive that person when they fix what they did. That would make me a much happier person. It probably wouldn't, but I feel like it would make me a happier person. (laughs) Forgiveness is given to those who don't deserve it. And listen, I'm not trying to whitewash the, the hurts that you've experienced, the ways people have turned their back on you. Because I know that not everyone who hurts you is a good person who's made a bad choice or just slipped up. Some people are desperately selfish and wicked. Some people, every other person in our society would look at and go, you don't have to forgive that person because this is the pattern of their life and this is what they do and this is how they hurt people and this is how, right? But we have to learn to forgive them too. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke 23, verse 24, what's he say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Who's he forgiving? Those who are spitting on him, those who are mocking him, those who are everything but deserving of forgiveness in that moment. Forgiveness is given to the undeserving. Because again, if our forgiveness hinges on what is deserved, then we will never be forgiven. And we will never be able to forgive others. So if we want to make forgiveness a matter of what is deserved, you and I should never expect to ever be forgiven by anyone for anything. Are we willing to offer forgiveness as freely as we have received it from Jesus Christ? With these brothers reconciled, God has one more lesson for Jacob and you and me through this interaction with Esau. 
Because the end of this passage displays that forgiveness is never demanding, forgiveness is never deserved, but also forgiveness is never the end. Forgiveness is never the end. I tried really hard to come up with another D word. Right? Couldn't come up with one that worked well. So we're, we're stuck with forgiveness is never the end. But let me explain. Forgiveness is never the end. Verses 12 through 17 says, Then Esau said, let's move on, and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servants. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, let me leave some of my people with you. But Jacob replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Sukkoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why he called the place Sukkoth. Okay, this is a part of this passage that has bothered me for years because I could not wrap my head around what's going on here. Jacob comes, Esau gives forgiveness. That's great, right? Now they're on good terms. So Jacob lies to his brother about coming to see him. And instead of going, <laughs> instead of going west to Seir, he goes south to Sukkoth. Everything Jacob's just been through about, you know, he, growing up, he was a liar. He was a cheater. He, he did all this stuff to deceive his brother. And his brother says, listen, that's fine. I forgive you. We're on good terms. And so Jacob turns around and deceives him again. Does that make sense to anybody else? Am I the only one that is bothered by that? And as I studied this passage with that in mind, this idea of, okay, I, I still don't understand this. I read several different commentaries and you know what I came to? I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> you can read all of the, all of the experts and all of the scholars and, and they come to several different conclusions about what's going on there. Some think, some think that he's, he's still afraid of his brother. Jacob's still afraid. And so he says, I'll, I'll come. And then he runs south to hide. Some think maybe he planned to go later. Maybe this was him going, yeah, my, my herds, my cattle, my people were all tired. We're all sick. We need to go get set up establish ourselves, rest up, recover, and then he was planning to come see his brother. Others think maybe this is just a, a cultural nicety. Like Esau never expected Jacob to come see him. It's just this interaction that they had to have of, well, yeah, I'll come. Well, let me help you. No, I, it's, 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 it's okay. You don't need to. Well, okay. And then they come to this agreement and Esau never expected his brother to come meet him. It was just a, a good cultural interaction. You know what the right answer is? I have no stinking clue. No idea. But whatever it was, here's what we need to see from this interaction. Esau doesn't hold this against his brother. You know how I know? If we flip over to Genesis 35, in verse 29, we see the burial of their father. Verse 29 of Genesis 35, it says, Isaac took his last breath and died. And then it says this at the end of the verse, his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Think about that for a second. The brothers came together. 
buried their father. There was no war. There was no battle. There was no destruction. There was no thievery of flocks, of herds, of family. Now, I don't know how deep the relationship between these two brothers go, but what I know is the next time they see each other, they're on good terms. The point is that Esau's forgiveness was not a one and done, nice family moment. It carried through the rest of the lives of these two men. Esau didn't say, I forgive you now, but so help me, if you ever cross me again, you're dead to me. That moment of forgiveness was not the end. The forgiveness carried on. Because forgiveness, true, deep, biblical forgiveness, is not limited to a moment in time. So many of you mothers know how this works. You don't forgive your children for hurting you, for rebelling, for breaking something in your house. That's none of your children. They've never broken lamps and tables, chairs. I put my head through a window a couple times. True story. But you don't just forgive your, your children for that moment and be like, okay, I forgive you. And then hold that against them for the rest of their lives. No, in your massive love for your children, for your sons and daughters, you forgive them. To me, you forgive them over and over and over for that same offense. Esau didn't say, Jacob, I forgive you. Now don't mess with me anymore. He forgives him. And carries that forgiveness through the rest of their lives. Now, here's the thing. Forgiveness does not attempt to minimize the pain or the suffering of the offense that needs to be forgiven. But true, meaningful, biblical forgiveness knows to let go of the offense and refuses to hold it against the one who has hurt you. Are we willing to remove all the limitations on the expanse of our forgiveness of others? Can we make forgiveness not the end? We forgive joyously, without demand, to those who are unforgiving, for those who are undeserving. And we do that without limits, not because it's an easy thing for us to do, because it is not an easy thing to do. Amen? Let's try it again. Amen? I don't ask for amens a lot, but I feel like that's one that we need to, we need to acknowledge, that that deserves an amen. We forgive not because it's easy, but we do it because that's the way Jesus has forgiven each and every one of us. What have we done to deserve Jesus' forgiveness? 
And the answer is nothing. There's nothing we could do that could make us worthy, that could purchase our forgiveness. Only Jesus' blood could purchase our lives back from sin and death and from the rebellion that we throw at our good, holy, and perfect Father. That's why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. We say, great. We offer the, the bulls and rams and all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Right? Right? Right, author of Hebrews? No? Okay. Because in chapter 10, verse 4, it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? Because they are not perfect. Just like you and I are not perfect. There is no sacrifice you and I can make that makes us worthy of our God. Only Jesus' blood, the perfect, spotless, holy lamb. So what have we done to deserve Jesus' forgiveness? Nothing. What does Jesus demand in exchange for our forgiveness? The answer is nothing. Because again, we cannot earn forgiveness. We cannot earn redemption. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be knowledgeable enough. We cannot be righteous enough. We cannot be fruitful enough in our lives. Because without salvation... we are lost. Without the blood of Jesus, we are lost. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ extends the, the, the avenue of salvation. Yes, we must trust in Jesus Christ, but that's not a work that we do to earn salvation. That allows us Right? We are saved by God's grace through faith. Our faith only allows us to take hold of that which God has extended through his grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not about anything we have to offer in exchange. And what is the limit of Jesus' forgiveness? What's the point at which Jesus will not forgive? The answer is there is none. There is no sin you have or will commit in your life that puts you beyond the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing that keeps you from the salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ is by refusing to accept it. But when you come to him, when you come to God's grace through faith, it does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how evil everybody else in the world thinks you are, how short you have fallen. Because Jesus' forgiveness is powerful and powerful enough for whatever you have been through. That's why, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, Tetalistai. It is what? Finished. Not mostly done, not almost there, not everything you need. Now just put the right pieces together. No, it is finished. It is done. Through the, through the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, 
We find a complete deliverance through Jesus Christ. Not a partial, a complete deliverance through Jesus Christ. Through his finished work on the cross. In Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, as Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest one you will ever hear anywhere ever. If you ever come to church on Sunday morning, you're disappointed with my message, go home and read the Sermon on the Mount. But in chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. And what Jesus is saying here is not that your forgiveness of others is a prerequisite for salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you truly understand the way you have been forgiven, the way Jesus has loved you and saved you and forgiven your every sin, how would you ever withhold that from another person? And if you cannot forgive another, you really have to ask, do I understand the way Christ has forgiven me? So here's the hard part. Because some of you have people, you have situations, maybe you have yourself that you have not forgiven that you haven't come to that place where you feel like you can forgive. You've been hurt, you've been disappointed in such a way that you have convinced yourself, I could never forgive them. And what's worse, you've convinced yourself, I could never forgive them and that's okay. God's okay with that. He's not, and it's not okay. Stop believing Satan's lie in your heart because he has deceived you. You and I are called to know Jesus Christ, the power of his love, his grace, and his mercy, to know how he has forgiven us. And in turn, we are to be people who forgive and forgive and forgive, and forgive, and forgive, and forgive, and forgive. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven you. True, deep, Divine forgiveness is never demanding, it's never deserved, and it is never the end. Church family, may we be a people rich in compassionate and reconciling forgiveness. May we forgive others, not because we want to, not because we think it's the right thing to do, not because it's beneficial to us, not because it will lift a great weight off of our own shoulders. Although if we're honest, forgiveness is right, it is good, it is beneficial, and it is a massive burden reducer. But those aren't the reasons why we forgive. 
No, may we forgive others without demand, without grounds, and without limits, because we understand how greatly we have been forgiven. And let us, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us, working in so many ways that are so much greater than our flesh could ever begin to imagine, let us forgive in a joyous reflection of the redemption that we have so graciously and gloriously received from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. As a broken and deeply flawed people, who are depraved with the very best that our flesh has to offer. Lord, may, may we not let a, a day or a moment go by that we don't remember what our flesh deserves and yet what you have given us. And may our memory, our joy, our celebration of that forgiveness that we have in you, that redemption, that purification that comes, not because we've done enough good stuff, but because of who you are and what you have done. Lord, may that drive us to be a people who share your unimaginable grace with the world around us. And Lord, we come confessing that we will fall short in that. Every single one of us in this room will fall short of that. We will fail as we try to love as you have loved us, as we try to forgive as you have forgiven us. But Lord, may we be willing to rise to our feet, stand in your love and go again. That we might be known as a people of your love and your forgiveness. Not because it's easy, but because it's who you are. Lord, may we be a reflection of you in the world in which you have sent us to be your children, your ambassadors, your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you and in your great and awesome name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.